Hello, I'm Kristen Marchand, and welcome to the Opiango Line, a podcast dedicated to the local heritage and unique culture of the Upper Madawaska and Opiango River Valleys. I'm joined today by Lynn Stewart and Jeff Bowman. We're all members of the Opiango Readers Theatre, and today we have for your listening pleasure a new Irish comedy entitled The Boogeyman. It's freely adapted from one of Lady Gregory's better-known one-act plays, The Bogeyman. As many fans of previous Irish comedy shows performed by the Opiongo Readers Theatre well know, we are big supporters of Lady Gregory, or as we like to call her, the real brains behind Ireland's famous Abbey Theatre in Dublin. And so, We thought one of her best comedies might inspire us as we try to commiserate with the local Irish as we all lament the necessary hiatus of that great local summer cultural event, Killaloo's and Irish Gathering. Usually, on a night such as tonight, the Opiongo Readers Theatre would be down in Killaloo helping to launch an Irish Gathering. Indeed, for the past two years, the Opiongo Readers Theatre has been part of that summer Irish cultural festival. And so, even though the COVID-19 pandemic has pretty much put the kibosh to the Irish gathering this summer, we thought it only fitting and just to give a tip of the hat to all those Irish gathering in spirit, if not in body, this coming weekend in Killaloo. So let's get to it. Lady Gregory's The Bogeyman premiered on July 4th 1912, and was published the following year as part of her new comedies collection. But despite having the bogeyman fixed in print, she continued to tinker with it long afterwards, which is why it seemed appropriate for the Opiongo Readers Theatre to start tinkering with it as well, at first simply by changing the play's location. Our play takes place, where else? But in Killaloo, Ontario. The two main characters also had to do more than walk the walk. They had to talk the talk, or speak like a couple of late 19th century Killaloo locals, if you know what I mean. So we tinkered some more, adding, subtracting, deleting, and downright inventing. We did a lot of inventing, if you know what we mean. And of course, our play couldn't miss the opportunity of mixing in a whole lot of local Killaloo family names or blending in some more Upper Ottawa Valley geography, if not salting and peppering and stirring in some spicy allusions to local history. All to say, without really knowing what we were doing, the bogeyman of Lady Gregory somehow became the boogeyman, not so much written by Lady Gregory as, oh well, more on that later. Let's just say that if you were a rascally child who grew up Irish in the Ottawa Valley in the 1950s, you knew the boogeyman was as real as Santa Claus, Easter Bunny, the Tooth Fairy, and leprechauns at the end of the rainbow. That is, if you were a kid who could be easily scared after one or both of your parents had to attend upon you after misbehaving at bedtime. Children who went to bed easily and quietly as church mice, well, they probably never heard of the boogeyman. Oh, but we did. Oh, we most certainly did. Frequently, the boogeyman was called upon in those bad old days as a handy and ever-present threat, ready at the beck and call of our frustrated parents. Indeed, 
The boogeyman was apparently easily roused, we were told, and he especially had a passion for the mere sound of misbehaving, noisy children at bedtime. In the 1950s, we were very often frightened into going nine-eyes or else be snatched away in the middle of the night and turned into gypsies or wandering tinkers or something equally vagabond where we'd have no home with loving parents left to go to. Such were the joys of being Irish. Today, we know 21st century child psychologists certainly would advise against using such bugaboo tactics to make children behave at bedtime, and we're not suggesting that we want to return to those bad old days of the 1950s. But let's just say the boogeyman remains a vivid concept in our local heritage and unique culture, and it reaches back many decades, even before us, perhaps even as far back as when our play takes place. So let's call our 1890s comedy a peon to local heritage and culture, if you will, but certainly not a master class in how to raise children and how to get them to do whatever parents believe to be the right thing for the right reason. But enough malarkey. Here it is, The Boogeyman, a free adaptation of Lady Gregory's The Boogeyman. It's Friday, August 20th, 1897, a warm, bright, sunny day with just a hint of autumn in the air that can easily be felt inside the new Ottawa, Arnprior and Perry Sound Railway Station in Killaloo, Ontario. The eastbound train from Perry Sound has just departed, leaving more than a dozen of passengers to rush off frantically in all directions throughout the village. One frazzled passenger a young girl of 19 remains alone in the station's waiting room, glancing up at the station's wall clock that tells her it's just past noon. She smiles broadly to herself. She is known as Biddy Colhane to her friends, but more properly, Bridget Fiona Maureen Colhane, born and raised in Maynooth and working these past three years as a milkmaid near Madawaska on Reynolds Dairy Farm. She's wearing the haggard old clothes of her trade. In one hand, she carries a freshly ironed, hand-me-down barmaid's dress, one size too large, but still she lays it lovingly on a shipping crate set between two windows overlooking the bustling main street. Just as quickly, she picks up the dress with one hand and holds it high against the afternoon sunlight. Dreamily, she runs her hand down one of its soft, white muslin sleeves before fingering blue and gold trim stitched along its collar and cuffs. She inhales deeply and almost starts dancing with it around the vacant floorboards, but for the station agent, Mr. Holly, a man who prefers not to be disturbed. He coughs with dyspeptic discomfort, peering at her with repressed disdain over his rimless glasses. Easily, his frustration wafts through the lone ticket window, opening ever so slightly between her waiting room and his office. He sits much like a king in front of a bay window above the tracks at his telegraph key. Bridget makes eye contact, noticing that he has been thumbing through ticket receipts that still remain in his hands. He stares at her as if she were some alien hoi polloi with no business being in a brand new railway station as pristine and expensive as the one recently built by J.R. Booth, obviously for the betterment of business interests in Killaloo. What business had she for the good of the town, he wondered. 
All this Mr. Holly communicated in an instant, while peering through his ever-so-small ticket window that, like some great wall of China, was intended to separate his essential service from any nuisance that might interfere with his railway. Bridget turns away from his withering stare, shakes off the wordless encounter, and begins walking towards a small washroom just off the waiting room in order to change into her wonderful dress. Suddenly, the whole station starts to rumble and shake as a westbound train from Ottawa arrives and, amidst all its clanging bells and repeated steam whistle toots and other mechanical racket, it disgorges, with considerable hustle and bustle, a dozen more passengers. Only one dares to approach Mr. Holly's unwelcoming waiting room, a young shepherd, also in his work clothes about 20 years of age. Tentatively, he opens the door and looks in as if some criminal about to case the joint. His name is Seamus Eregina Thaddeus Harrington, though his people once called him Thaddy for short. All his friends growing up in Douglas have always called him Teague, though no one can say why. Despite his seeming criminal intent, there is a handsome, if ambiguous, glint in his eyes, as if he were supremely self-confident, yet somehow quite shy. It may have had something to do with having earlier that morning quit his job of six years working at Donahue's sheep farm between Admaston and Douglas. He, too, is carrying a new suit of second-hand clothes, the sort of glad rags bartenders make do with for late-night work, early morning weddings, and weekend wakes and funerals. The station agent notices the young shepherd with equal disdain, but after the westbound train leaves, Mr. Hawley busies himself with the business of the emerging nation, sending and receiving dozens of telegraph messages. He pays little heed to the young couple in the waiting room, so long as they're not up to something, which is another reason he has everything in the waiting room nailed down. Recognizing the telltale marks of their respective occupations, the milkmaid and shepherd eye each other with suspicion, given the usual distrust common among competing farmhands. Good Lord, that was a caution. I almost didn't wake up in time to get off that train. I don't suppose you'd know where the Beresford Hotel might be. Lord, save us and preserve us. A shepherd, is it? What would you be wanting with the Beresford? Surely there's no sheep I know ever signed a hotel register for a good night's sleep. But then again, there's no telling what a person might find here in Killaloo. Or so I'm told. I'm not from here, so I really don't know. I only know the Beresford opened last year, just before Christmas. And they're doing a bang-up job. So word's out they're hiring help. But I don't know they'll be needing a shepherd, but you never know. Maybe they do be having sheep upstairs living the life of Riley. Oh, you're a cute one. Did you not have a loving mother who told you never to speak to a gentleman like that? It's no concern of yours what me mother told me. No gentleman ever spoke first to a lady he doesn't know. Sure, it's no difficulty I have to hold me tongue at all at all for seeing a billy goat butting its head into other people's business. I'd rather you go your own way, if you please. Well, this is going well. There's a fine how-do-you-do, so what's to lose? A lesser man might say that you were no lady at all, so it wouldn't matter much what a billy goat does or does not do. But as you can plainly see, I'm no goat. I don't even tend to any billy goats. Indeed, I'm just a humble citizen of the world, meandering through this fair village, looking perhaps to cleanse my palate at its local watering hole. I'm sorry if you were offended by my Christian charity to make a soul feel less of a stranger with a little palaver. But I'll be out of your way in no time, as soon as I use the facilities. 
Upon my mother's heartless soul, you will not. I myself was just about to go in there and change. Well, by all means, do as you please, miss. But it would be much appreciated by those with business in the place if we could dispense with this gab-fest, and you be fast about your work. I've a meeting to go to shortly, half past the hour, as a matter of fact, and having no time to tarry with the likes of you. Only trying as I was to be a good Christian to a heathen who obviously wants to keep her pagan ways and boil a man in oil for simply inquiring after her health. Oh, never mind putting on the dog and inquiring about anything. I'm no heathen, not even close to being a pagan, and I wouldn't know how to boil anything up in oil, even though it might not be a bad thing to be learning when it comes to the likes of you. But to show I am indeed a true Christian, there, you go first and gallivant yourself right in there. See, I'm more than able to practice true Christian charity. But make no mistake, it's being nice to you for no other reason than the sooner you're done in there, the sooner myself, if not all of Killaloo, will be rid of the likes of you. Well, aren't you the sweet piece of blueberry pie with ice cream altogether? Only a heathen or a pagan, twice over, would be wont to rid the town of the likes of me. A poor shepherd lad just trying to make his way in this terrible world, which I'm thinking I'm learning this very minute that is indeed more terrible by far this very day. Why, just to spite you, I might stay in here for an eternity. But just for your own edification, Killaloo's one of those towns, a man with ambition such as myself, who's ready to roll up his sleeves and work like the Dickens. Well, a fellow like that, I'm told, can do mighty well here. Or so me father tells me. And I always listen to me father, despite what some other ungrateful children, who shall remain nameless, might gob about otherwise, if not holding a grudge in their very own loving mother. Oh, what's the point of talking to a gnomagun like you? Wish now and stop your palaver before I get really serious and take you down a peg or two. Just skedaddle in there and be done with you. I'm exhausted just looking at your miserable carcass. What concern is it of yours about what I think of my stepmother? Or what concern is it of yours what I think of Killaloo? I never said anything again it, and you can't say that I ever did. I've never been here before in my life. What opinion could I possibly have of a place I know nothing of? But, just to be rid of you, why don't you just do the honourable thing and get in there and do your business, and then get on your way, so I won't have to look at that puss for another tick-tock of that station clock? Well, I'd like to oblige, but I'll have to stand here on principle. Let it never be said that Teague Harrington ever stood in the way of a milkmaid wanting to change her clothes, if not her unchristian ways. Even if she's having some kind of conniption fit, threatening to woe betide a gentleman for simply trying to be, well, a gentleman. Ah, there's no talking to you. Two can play that game. I won't budge an inch until you quit your belly aching and go first, and be gone with you once and for all, or else I'll be forced to give you a real tongue lashing. Why, if I submit to your desire... You'll have it all over town before the sun goes down that Bridget Colhane's a wet old hen with worse manners than a godforsaken shepherd lad from Hell's Half Acre. I'll have you know, Miss What's-Your-Face, I'm not from Hell's Half Acre, but from God's own pride and joy, the happy village of Douglas, where boys are brought up right and where even the sheep have better manners than some people. Down there, we all know how to treat a lady, who we all know can certainly test a man's patience, what with being as obstreperous as in a young wet hen, sometimes. Oh, I have no idea what you're on about. Up, step on us, indeed. Well, wonders never cease. I had no idea that instead of doing your job properly, minding after your sheep, you'd be chewing off the dirty end of some old dog-eared yellow book that taught you how to use words like 
up something or other of us that no Christian soul would ever let pass her tongue. For all I know, it could be one of those dirty foreign words that only heathens and people who live in Douglas use. A word that whoever says it can expect nothing more than a free ride right down to the hellfires of damnation, lickety-split. Why, hey, aren't you the little preacher? Where'd you learn to sermonize like a regular Moses? Among the moo cows? A place like Maynooth, if you must know. A place where a young woman grows up expecting to be treated like a lady. And where young men had better watch their manners or else learn to sleep with one eye open. As for sermonizing among cows, it's a far better thing I be doing among those wonderful beasts that do so much good for mankind than among that rock pile of dirty word thingamabobs down there in Douglas. Why, the worst, most infernal soul I ever heard of. He hailed from Douglas. So it's little wonder with all your palaver. You're all pretty near the same, talking of advancement and ambition and making your way in the world. You're two peas in a pod. It's all blarney with you Douglas folk. Makes me terrible sick just to think about all the malarkey I've had to put up with over the years. After me cousin always achieving everything anybody ever dreamed of in life. And yet coming from a place no bigger than Maynooth. Douglas, indeed. I'm sick of Douglas and everybody in it. You have no idea how many hours I've had to suffer listening to me dear old wizened-up stepmother talking about some cousin of hers that she said was mine too, and he down in Douglas. You're no different. Bluster and baffle gab and big words like up and strap us and the like and making us all feel downright stupid and shameful about ourselves. Who might you be blathering on about, miss? I might know this cousin of yours, though just passing faces through me head, I'd be thinking few and Douglas had the looks I'm seeing here. What do you mean, the looks? What looks? Does everything with you have to be so dark and dangerous, if not downright full of fisticuffs? I mean, how you look, the looks of you, that I was to be wondering to myself out loud that if your cousin looked like somebody I knows in Douglas, being as you might look alike. Otherwise, why, I might have meant it as a compliment to yourself that I might be trying to give you. Did you ever think of that, eh? You know, a lesser man, without the infinite patience and good breeding that they do be given us down in Douglas, training to be shepherd boys as we were. Why, a lesser man might think he was an infuriating young gossoon, and that a schoolmaster might be wise not to throw up his arms, but sit himself down besides and show you some benefit by taking you across his knee. And, and... And what? Finish what you were going to say, you... You whore... I've had all I'm going to take today from the likes of you. You, you Douglas Shepherd. Douglas, indeed. Do you have any idea what Douglas even means to somebody like me? It's a town with a terrible boogeyman. I'm well to be rid of you and want to hear no more about it. And with that and the thundering slam of the washroom door, Bridget Fiona Maureen Colhane left in a huff, secreting herself in the peaceful seclusion of this spanking, brand new, Oway and P.S. Railway washroom in lovely, peaceful downtown Killaloo, where no one in the entire village had any idea of the shenanigans that had just gone on at the station, not even the dyspeptic Mr. Holly, who had his headphones on to better decipher Morse code. Quickly and quietly, but still simmering with anger and frustration the more she thought about that Douglas Shepherd, whatever his name was, Little Biddy Culhane tried her best to think good thoughts, to think only about her near prospects for her immediate future. But nothing could seem to keep her mind from bouncing back and forth between those wonderful possibilities and that Douglas Shepherd lad, that is, until she glanced at the very thing she loved 
best about her future. Those white muslin sleeves with that collar of blue and gold trim and matching ribbon sash. There was no mirror made available in the room for Biddy to even see the miraculous change that was taking place in her outward appearance, though she hoped she would look much, much better for her barmaid interview that she was about to have at the Beresford Hotel. Even the name of her new prospective village made her giddy with joy, though she feared not say it out loud lest she jinx her chances of her majestically flying away from the milk barns and cow pastures of Madawaska. In her wild imagination, it was as if shortly she would be swept up by a magic carpet, taking her away from the daily slops and dank drudgery of her life in Madawaska. Indeed, she would soon be landing among the urbane, civilizing, and infinitely fascinating people of Killaloo. Even the name she dared not say out loud sounded so exotic, so romantic, so thrilling to her in the cow pasture. Killaloo, Killaloo, Killaloo. Oh, so much better than Madawaska. Killaloo was a sound sung by a beautiful songbird compared to Madawaska, a sound that reminded Biddy of some drunkard gargling with baking soda. Madawaska, Killaloo. What a wonderful village she might soon be able to call home. As Biddy thought more about her prospects, and less about that infuriating shepherd, she got lost in the look of her nice new dress. Indeed, she lost track of time, for she could afford to carry no personal timepiece, nor a personal mirror, nor even a handbag to carry them in. Indeed, she carried everything in a gunny sack. Just looking at that gunny sack made her blood boil. Her gunny sack was a perfect match for the one carried by that Douglas Shepherd lad, that infernal madman in the waiting room. She tried to think of something else. The time. The time. She hadn't noted the exact time of the station clock just before she stepped in to change. She had a momentary panic, but then she felt she had plenty of time before her one o'clock appointment interview. She wondered if it might yet be past 12.30. Surely it must be later than that. Then again, there was no place to wait except the waiting room. Oh, God, she thought, let it be ten to one, so I don't have to deal with him any more. She dared not stick her head out the door to check the clock, lest that base start throwing more of his big, dirty words around like obstrep, uh, obstrep, oh, never mind. Meanwhile, our bookish young shepherd stood mortified in the waiting room. His interview at the Beresford was at 12.30 p.m., the one that his father had so carefully set up for him by telegram and that he dare not miss. He could plainly see on the station clock it was 12.23 p.m. Would he even have time to change or find the Bearsford? It couldn't be a far piece, could it? His father said it was not a large village, but what if the Bearsford was in old Killaloo or out along the old Portage Road? God forbid, maybe halfway to Basin Depot. His father had told of such places and maybe he could get some help from some of those wonderful Killaloo Irish his father had spoken of. The Sarsfields, the Fitzgeralds, the Bolins, the Garveys, the Culhanes. Now that's curious. Didn't that mad as a hatter milkmaid from Manu say she was a Culhane? No, it couldn't be. But maybe she knew that cousin. 
that infernal nitwit and Nanuth his father often beat him over the head with, always comparing him to how she was smart as a whip and a real looker to boot. No, it wasn't worth the trouble to ask that yappy little pup outside. Teague refused to pursue that thought. Rather, he stared blankly but with anticipation at the change room door. It seemed to curiously stare back at him obstreperously. Nicely put together. Sturdy craftsmanship. Very nicely mortised. Downright attractive, if not gorgeous. Door, stupid, not the girl. What was he thinking? Behind that door was a beautiful girl getting dressed. He shouldn't even be looking at that door at all at all. That was positively indecent of him to be doing such a thing. The thought practically put his brain in a tizzy even more than it already was in. He shifted his gaze and finally had to move about until he finally sat down again on a bench that was nailed to the wall and ran under the windows overlooking the village. Women! God knows how long it will take her to put her face on. And what the hell is putting a face on? Why, he thought to himself, you'd almost think women thought every day was Halloween, always putting their faces on. Before Teague knew it, he was back daydreaming about growing up in Douglas and hearing about that beautiful but infuriating cousin of his in Maynooth, wondering what she wore on Halloween and how attractive she really might be. Suddenly, the door to the waiting room was flung open and out stepped Bridget Fiona Maureen Culhane. Instantly, Teague was confused. He wasn't quite certain that this woman was the girl he had just met. To Teague, it was as if some magician had performed an amazing feat of trickery and sent out a completely different young lady. What a woman! She was even smiling, but that thought didn't last long as she raised her brown, beautiful eyes above her rosy cheeks just in time for Teague to see those same beautiful chestnut eyes turn steely and then downright stormy. Are you still here? I thought God would be merciful and have made you disappear. Well, I have to change too, you know. Or did all your fussing about that took a dog's age in there make you forget that I have to change as well? Well, excuse me. Be my guest. And so it was, during the next few seconds, it was as if two ships were passing in the night. Both young farmhands determined to be oblivious to the other's liniments as they each bullied their own right of way, each mindful of just how close they dare pass one another in their righteous act of self-determination. While Bridget swept by hurriedly with the distinctive rustle of her dress, matched by what seemed like her puckered annoyance that might have made Mr. Holly proud, Teague felt only soft, warm air engulf him, if not caress his neck and ruddy cheek. Just as quickly it seemed to evaporate as if thin air and to leave him wondering if she might be gone forever. They had come within only a few inches of each other and only for a moment while both had averted their eyes, both trying as best they could to ignore each other's existence. Biddy, however, could not help but get a horrible whiff of some god-awful sheep dip her shepherd lad must have fallen into just prior to stepping on the train earlier that morning. She moved unsteadily towards the window, and after he passed into the change room, she unhooked the nearest window and gasped for fresh air. Teague, on the other hand, opened the change room door, but just as suddenly was overtaken by some new fragrance, 
subtle at first in her passing to be almost without notice, then, as if watching the beauty of a lush harvest moon, the young shepherd was struck as if by some unexpected heat lightning. Thoroughly it went to the very core of his being and overpowered him, leaving him dreamily enthralled with the sweetest scent he had ever had the good misfortune to encounter. From that moment on, it was as if Teague were in a trance. He simply floated into the little room, closed the door behind himself, and once inside, could neither concentrate on matters at hand nor wipe a silly grin off his face. But that face, with its rugged and chiseled features without benefit of a mirror, became the subject of countless little nicks, slight cuts, and pitiful wounds that as the lad attempted to shave his weak old beard since the previous Sunday when he had returned from the sheep pastures to attend Mass at St. Michael's in Douglas. Still, he did his best, and after less than half the time Biddy had taken, he emerged. The effect on Bridget Fiona Maureen Colhane was immediate and strikingly ambiguous. Certainly, she noticed the change of attire. Teague's old, shabby shepherd's clothes were now placed with a simple yet elegant definition of a smart black suit, clean white shirt, and striking green tie, its Celtic emblems a perfect match for his soft green eyes. But that face! It had been mauled by a grizzly bear. What happened? What do you mean, what happened? I changed into me father's best hand-me-down suit, the one I need for me job. Yes, but what kind of job might that be? Will we have to appear mauled by a grizzly bear? Uh, there's no talking to you. For the love of Mike, why would you say a rude thing like that and me, still trying as I am to hold me, wish and be a Christian to you? Honestly, not even Job could put up with the likes of you. The likes of me? Am I to understand that you can have no appreciation for the help I'm be offering? After you there saying you had to skedaddle somewhere for a meeting. I do have a meeting, and less than... Oh, God, I'm late. My father will kill me. If you really wanted to help me, you'd get the hell out of my damned way and let me get to where it is I'm damn well supposed to be going, wherever the hell that may be. Well, if you want to go meet somebody with a face like that, no need for me to stand in your damned way. By all means, there's the damned door. Spoken like a true damnable heathen. What's wrong with me, face? Oh my God, what have I done to myself? Lord, thunder and Jesus, Mary and Joseph, I'm undone, completely undone. I've no job, and I can't fix this bloody mess to get me a new one. I've been a worse fix than one of those blithering idiots locked up down in Kingston. Oh, get a grip, you nitwit. Here's my handkerchief. Let me soak up the blood and attend to your wounds. I've seen baby calves with worse cuts on their little faces. Oh, don't be such a crybaby. Oh, God knows why I do be helping the likes of you. Well, it's the Christian thing to do. Why, if this had happened in Douglas... Oh, to blazes with Douglas and all the crackerjacks who live there. I've heard all I'm going to hear of that infernal place and that blasted cousin of me mother's. Oh, little Daddy Harrington, he's such a smart little lad. Top of his class already in grade one. Oh, who the hell cares about grade one? Well, it's, it's a very important year. A foundational year, says me father, in a young lad's life. Oh, listen to yourself now. A shepherd talking about a foundational year. Did they teach you that in shepherd school when they taught you not to fall into the sheep dip? Well, at least, you smell better than before you changed and cut your face all to ribbons. I didn't cut my face all to ribbons. Well, yes, you did, if you must know. 
Well, if you must know, I was distracted in there, and it was partly your fault. Oh, there it is, ladies. There's a man for you. Whatever misfortune befalls him, it's always a woman at fault. Another swaggering Adam blaming his self-inflicted wounds on an unsuspecting Eve. Well, it's true. I'm not saying it was all your fault completely. I admit I did the damage to myself. Certainly it was me who had the bloody straight razor in me bloody hand that did all the bloody ribbon cutting, as you call it, but that perfume you're wearing, it's damned intoxicating stuff. I couldn't help to be dreaming of me father's cousin from Anute that he was always going on about. A damned fine looker, he said, though I never seen her myself. Having never got west of Eganville, and only then for me confirmation at St. James. St. James? You must know my cousin then. My mother said he was confirmed at St. James when Bishop Lorraine picked him right out of the crowd and tapped him on the shoulder and then slapped his face, you know, to symbolize the hardship the good Lord puts upon us all. And you know what that Nomigan said? Hit me harder, your worship, if only to be certain that the devil's beat clean out of me. You were there! I knew it! Tell me what happened next to that pain in my neck. I hope the bishop walloped that cousin of mine real good, sending him arse over apple cart knocking him senseless over more than a few pews far into kingdom come. Please, tell me he got slapped silly at least. Oh, I've dreamt of that happening to him more than once. Year after year, me mother was constantly at me, as if all I needed to hear about to make me a better person was her blasted grandnephew down in Douglas, who was supposed to be some kind of idiot savant who was going to get up in the world and be better than us all. Do you have any idea how infuriating that can be? Knowing there's some boogeyman out there putting us all to shame putting the fear of the Lord into us all, as if we're nothing but no-account failures in life, past, present, and future. Do you have any idea what that feels like? Forever making whatever we do second best, third best, sometimes of no account at all at all. Do you have any idea? I do. I do. I bloody well do. I have a relative just like that, too. And every time I heard her name, it was like another one of these cuts to my face that you're about mending. Surely you've got some training as a nurse, or perhaps you're one of those people who comes by medicine naturally. But my God, you've got to touch. It's as if my face were all healed up. Oh, enough of your blather. Tell me more about why you think your relative could be as bad as my cousin, who you still haven't told me that you know for certain. I'm dying to know what happened to him. I hope he came to a bad end. But if I have to hear he's become a great success, oh, I don't know what I'll do if I don't get this job here in Killaloo. You just love the sound of Killaloo, Killaloo. You're here for a job. What job would you be after? Not the bartender one. Surely not, sweet Jesus Murphy. Not the bartendering job. None of your beeswax. Tell me about my cousin first. Well, fine. If that's the way you want to be. My, my father was always saying she could turn her hand to this or that and make a blooming success of anything. He said it wouldn't surprise him if she could make a silk purse out of a sow's ear she was so good with needle and thread. But me, he said, I'd be lucky to live out me days pushing the south end of a sow going north with me having to rise up that old porker right out of some dirty ditch full of old slops and it'll take me a month of Sundays if not till eternity comes to an end. Well, that's a mean thing to say. Your father sounds just like my mother. She once said, despite me winning all manner of awards at school, I was only a third-rate student in a fourth-rate village, and that her grand-nephew or third cousin twice removed or whatever in tarnation he was supposed to be, that the bishop was so impressed with his desire to rid himself of evil at his confirmation that the bishop took him right under his wing and was thinking about paying for his higher education. And me mother said it wouldn't surprise her at all at all that he'd already graduated from St. Pat's down in Ottawa, Magus cum laude, 
which she said was about as good as it gets among the high mucky mucks. Though she said I probably wouldn't even know what Magus come loudy meant because I'd the brains of a village idiot. After a while, I couldn't take it anymore, so I just quit in grade 10. I told my teacher she could take her British history and all that stuff she made us read, and that I'd read enough to know it was all a pack of lies. So I told her right there in front of the whole class she could shove that British history where Patty stuck the shovel, where the sun don't shine. You didn't. I did. The nerve of her. Teaching British history and making out the poor Irish were nothing but a bunch of ignorant fools who brought the famine down upon themselves. That's not how my dad said it happened and he should know. He lived through it. Now there's a bit of school and I wouldn't mind you teaching me. I was no genius at the book learning in school. Those complication tables I could never figure out. And even to this day, my father says I count like somebody from Newfoundland. I get to 12 sheep and who knows what's next. 10, 11, 12, and another one, and another one, and another one. Go figure. Ooh, hope the new job doesn't need you to make change. Otherwise, you might need to keep your rosary handy. Well, it's probably not going to happen at all. But the clock over there, it's well past my meeting time. And with my face all cut up, it's probably no use even going. Even if I knew where to go, which I don't, with a mug like this, maybe I could get a job in the circus if one ever came to town. My father was right. I won't amount to much after all. That's no way to be talking, if I listen to my mother, or I should say my stepmother, God bless her dirty soul. I'd never have had the gumption to ever get out of Maynooth and head for the bright lights of Madawaska. Why, it's not everybody who has the wherewithal to be a milkmaid. It's a pretty competitive market up there between Lake St. Peter and Madawaska. If I were no good at it at all, I might have ended my days up in Whitney. Why, here, Whitney's a pretty tough town. Oh, no kidding. It's so tough, Whitney cows have to milk themselves because the bulls won't let anyone near them. There's not a milkmaid for miles around. No need to hire one, a Whitney farmer told me when I first arrived from Maynooth. It would only be paying someone to sit around, twiddling their thumbs, watching cows peeking out from behind the bulls' horns, with no way of getting a milk pail to within a half mile of them. That's about as bad as trying to get a herd of sheep across Kelly's Corners. Do you know how many sheep get killed by teamsters flying through those crossroads there with hayloads for the lumber camps, trying to beat the train, if only to keep their jobs from being taken away? If it wasn't for properly trained shepherds minding their flocks, why there's no telling how much mutton would be flying through the air or wool hanging up in the trees at Kelly's Corners. But no, my dad said any old Withrick could herd sheep, in Scotland, he said, they've even trained the stupidest mongrel in town to go into the hills and bring back a whole herd without so much as losing one little lamb. Boy, would I like to get my hands on a sheepdog like that. I could sleep all day. What happened to all that Douglas spit and vinegar I was listening to a while back? I thought you were a man on a mission to make something of himself. Sleeping behind a hayrick while a mangy mongrel does all the work. That doesn't sound like much of a man I'd like to be friends with. I know, I know, but sometimes I get down on myself, just thinking about how little my people sometimes think of me. That's no reason to be down on yourself. My people were the same. At least my stepmother was, the old battle-axe. You know that school teacher I was telling you about? The one who tried to teach me that pack of lies she called British history? Well, that teacher was my very own mother, my father's second wife. My real mother died when I was born. No kidding. Well, you must have got a real licking when you got home after school that day. Well, actually not. She was an old Scotch prune, all puckered up as all get out. I knew that if I went home, she'd practically have me killed. So that day, I quit the whole shebang. I just walked right out of that school that day, and I never looked back. I kept walking 25 miles to Whitney, and then, 
After I met that one fellow who said he was the lone dairy farmer up there, I walked another 13 miles to Madawaska and have been working there ever since. I rode my father right away to help keep in touch, but I told him in no uncertain terms I'm never coming back. To her. To Maynooth. To all that nasty palaver. Not until she'd got a one-way ticket out of town or else was pushing up daisies. I told him I had enough of her for one lifetime. Speaking of Maynooth, did you ever know that looker my father kept beating me up with? She was supposed to be a pretty good student and won enough ribbons to cover her whole bedroom wall so you couldn't even see the wallpaper. Oh, she was a good student, all right, if we're talking about the same person. I did know somebody once like that, but she never made it past grade 10. What did you say her name was? Uh, Biddy. Biddy something or other. It's funny. I spent so much time hearing about her and absolutely hating everything I heard, I have trouble remembering her last name. Now, just give me a minute. It'll come to me. Meanwhile, I think I know that cousin you hated to hear about in Douglas. Well, he wasn't really my cousin. He was my stepmother's sister's husband's nephew. Every time her sister rode from Douglas to my stepmother in Maynooth, well, I never actually met him because we never did get to Douglas until the train made that possible, but then it was too late. I was already working in Madawaska. Anyway, my stepmother was a MacDonald, but I'm a Culhane after me dad. She married me father, and her sister married some fellow down in Douglas called Harrington. He's supposed to be friends with the proprietor of the Beresford, a Mr. Dunnigan. And so my dad wrote to me to say he heard from the old prune that Mr. Dunnigan was doing well at the Beresford. And so my dad thought he'd pass it along, that Mr. Dunnigan might have a job for me as a barmaid. My dad said that might allow me to earn enough to go back to school in Killaloo, if it's not too late for me to go back to school. Anyway, my dad said to be on the lookout for that Harrington galoot. He might be sniffing around these parts, or maybe was even the real owner of the Beresford Hotel. I hope not, but then again, I wouldn't mind meeting him. Just once. Oh, I see. Now, did that Harrington fella have a first name? The know-it-all who the bishop slapped twice in the face? I think his name was Theodore, though I know my stepmother said his people called him Thaddy. I used to call him a lot of other names. But I'm a bit like you. I didn't really like to think about him that much. Or even rightly remember his name that much. Even though I doubt I'll ever forget how he got lorded over me as a child. Oh, I knew him well. His parents and aunts and uncles all called him Thaddy. And until even then they said he disgraced that good name. And so they started calling him by the nickname everybody in Douglas knows him by. But for the life of me, I still can't remember Biddy's last name in Maynooth. You must know it. She made my childhood a living hell with all that talk of her making a silk purse and all her academic awards. Just once, I'd like to give her a piece of my mind face to face. The nerve of her being so perfect among us mere mortals. Oh, she's not perfect. Not by a long shot. Biddy's proper name is Bridget Fiona Maureen Culhane, and she was far from perfect. In fact, she left school and the last I heard of her, she was trying to get a job in Whitney. But anybody could have told that genius there's no milkmaid jobs in Whitney. Holy smokes, you were in Whitney? You must know her then. Why, she even has the same last name as you. You must have been first cousins or something like that. Oh, Mr. Harrington, you're as thick as they come. Biddy is me. I'm Bridget Culhane, the boogeyman you've hated all your life. I'm no genius, but even I figured that out a minute ago. More to the point. Now that you know I'm your boogeyman, please tell me what happened to your cousin Thaddy Harrington. Surely you'd know something of what happened to him in a village as small as Douglas. You both have the same last name too, for God's sake. Grade 10 or no grade 10, you can't be that much of a genius if you haven't figured that out already. 
You see, Thaddy Harrington wasn't exactly my cousin. We were closer. Your brother? Well, I don't care, even if he was your brother. I'm not sorry for what I said about him, but I do apologize to you. Nobody should have to listen to their own kith and kin being raked over the coals. I'm truly sorry, but he deserved it. He was such a shining star that my stepmother made him a living hell for me. I hope he's slopping pigs somewhere. Well, not exactly slopping pigs right now, but he might have to soon. I last heard he was in Killaloo. His father's pretty tight with Mr. Dunnigan at the Beresford. In fact, when you get to the Beresford, find somebody to point him out to you. He won't be hard to spot once you clap eyes on him. He's got a pretty unusual face. <laughs> Some kind of circus freak, I hope. Just wait till I see him. I'm going to give him a piece of my mind. Just the very sight of that face will probably make my blood boil. For way too long, he was held over me like some kind of holier-than-thou saint. Why couldn't I have thought of getting the bishop to whack me across the face, she said. What was I, she said. Stupid or something? Not to think of that move? I was nothing but a stupid, ungrateful sinner to my stepmother. Have you any idea how that feels? I know exactly how that feels. But shouldn't you be getting up and going to the Beresford for your interview? I wouldn't want you to miss out on your chance, even if I missed out on mine. You haven't missed out yet. There's still time. You can do it. Oh, then again, I'm not so certain I want to go. I don't know. Sometimes when you wake up in the middle of the night and you hear the cows moving and watch the stars twinkling because you can't sleep, a girl gets to thinking about a lot of things. There's no point to it at all sometimes. It really is water under the bridge. It wasn't really his fault. He was who my stepmother made him out to be. Maybe we're still just thinking like the little kids we used to be. Really, it's all in our heads about these boogeymen, don't you think? Sometimes I wonder why we just can't get on with our lives without having to compare ourselves with other people, even if they're terribly successful people. Why can't we just be happy who we are, or who we really want to be, who we were really meant to be? Never mind about what other people think we should be. Kind of like, what's in a name? Well, what do you mean, what's in a name? Well, take your name. I just met you, and you said your name was Bridget Caldhain. How was I to know? I knew you all my life, but as Biddy something or other. I still can't believe I couldn't remember Biddy's last name was Caldhain. But it had to be you all along. The noggin's a pretty amazing thing. We shepherds, we have a lot of time to think. Out there under the stars, tending sheep at night. I often wondered what I'd say if I ever met that boogeyman as you called her. Well, today I met you and you're no boogeyman. You're not even a man, thank the Lord. Still, my dad was right about one thing. You sure are a looker. Oh, thank you, Mr. Harrington. But I don't feel as at all as magnanimous towards your brother. I feel like marching right up to that Beresford Hotel and, and telling him... To stick his success where the sun don't shine? Exactly. What if I told you... You don't have to go that far. What do you mean? What if I told you that your boogeyman was part of me family, all right, but instead of being me brother, me brothers knew him as Thaddy, but everyone else who cared to get to really know him, they just called him Teague. Biddy, the truth is, I'm Teague. I'm your boogeyman. Uh, I don't know. I don't quite know what to say or do. I know what I'd like to say and do. Bloody as I am, out of a job as I seem to be, with no real prospects to speak of. I'd like to say Killadoo does have a real nice ring to it right about now. 
especially when there's somebody who's been through a terrible lot of thingamabobs just like me and who smells sweeter than the sweet smell of success and we're sitting side by side real snug and close. The truth is, I'd say, I've fallen pretty hard today, not just because I don't have no real prospects for the job I thought I wanted, but I've fallen pretty hard today as well for a real looker hoping we might both somehow find the gumption to finagle a way to stay here in this sweet-sounding village of Killaloo. And that's the truth. Is that what you'd really like to do right now? That and one more thing. And there you have it. If you liked our little comedy, know that it was freely adapted from Lady Gregory's The Bogeyman by Barry Conway, our sometimes rascally misbehaving producer here at the Opiango Line, who still believes in the boogeyman. In fact, he gave us strict orders to say this, that if you didn't like our comedy, oh, he has no idea who wrote it, or, or where the idea came from, or, or where the original script may be found other than to say the boogeyman himself dictated every blasted word of it to him one scary night when he couldn't get to sleep and refused to go to bed quietly. All of us here at the Opiango Line wish you and all of those Irish folks gathering in spirit, if not body and killaloo this weekend, a good night's sleep with no boogeyman dreams. I'm Kristen Marchand. And for Jeff Bowman and Lynn Stewart and our producer, Barry Conway, good day and God bless.